on this episode of Comedy Rewind. What makes the humour of Office Space age so well? Was the movie's box office failure simply due to poor marketing? And what could feel better than smashing a printer or photocopy machine? All of this and more on Comedy Rewind. 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 Push Rewind. I thought this was a comedy show. What's going on guys? Welcome to Comedy Rewind. We are powered by Audio Technica as we rewatch the great comedies of the 1990s. I'm your host, John O'Peck, and joining me, clutching his red stapler, <laughs> it's very special guest, Dagan Moriarty. How you doing, Dagan? Hello, Jono. What's happening? <laughs> <laughs> it's so good to have you here, Dagan. We've been trying to do this for a while, but we made it work. We did. You are, of course, uh, an animator or lead animator on Sesame Workshop and one of the hosts of the Retro and Nostalgia podcast, Knockback. So I feel like you're very qualified to be here and talking about Office Space. What do you I'm think? I'm excited. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we've been having trouble pulling this together. I was jokingly saying that I blame Jono for that, but of course it's <laughs> my craziness, my crazy schedule. But it's so nice to finally be able to sit down with you and talk about this uh, very important film. It's a busy time of the year, isn't it, is. it? Oh, it is. It really is. So Sesame Workshop, you, of course, uh, involved in the animated side of Elmo's world and whatnot. Uh, do you want to give a quick little rundown of that? Sure, sure, absolutely. So I'm uh, an animator. My day job is I'm an animator and a character designer at Sesame Workshop in New York. Um, my team mm. is the in-house animation team. We call ourselves... We- we half-jokingly call ourselves SWAT, the Sesame Workshop animation team, or the SWAT team. But it actually kind of pick, it actually became a thing. Like People picked up on that and sort of ran with it. We kind of operate in a creative services capacity in the company to address the, the company's animation needs across the various departments. So we work on the domestic show. We work on Sesame Street itself. We work on, as you said, Jono, we work on Elmo, the Elmo's World segment of Sesame Street. And... There's another newer segment called Abby's Amazing Adventures, which is another five-minute segment of the show. And we do all the animation for that, which is, I think, we're starting the third season of Abby now in season 51. So that's been going on for a few years. Sesame Street's only about a half hour long now, so we are responsible for about a third of the actual show, which is pretty cool. And then we do various other projects for clients like HBO. So we're involved in all projects animated, we try to take up as much of that work as we can so they Sesame could outsource less and we could stay as busy yeah. as possible. And yeah, I've been there since 2009. Very cool. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And then, as you said, by night, um, I do the Knockback podcast. That's my double life, podcaster by yeah. by night. <laughs> Indeed. I'm, I'm looking forward to having a child that's old enough to watch Sesame Street so I can look for my buddy Dagan's name in the credits there or something. There you go. I like it. Yeah. If for no other reason, it's good that you're having a kid for that. So thank you. So thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I, I listened to, like, I know Knockback is it's such a, a powerhouse in the retro and nostalgia podcasting world, but a lot of topics are submitted by listeners and they always want you guys to do movies and, and that kind of thing. Uh, so I'm just going to say, if you're a Knockback fan, forget about movies, come here for your 90s comedies and let those guys talk about their, you know, memories of summer camp, their trips to McDonald's and whatever else they want to 
talk about because <laughs> <laughs> you and Colin can really make uh, anything entertaining with with the memories that you you share on that oh, show. Oh, thanks, John. I appreciate that. You know, I have so much to say yeah. about the movie we're going to talk about today that I think I could even do. We could even still do a knockback episode, and it wouldn't. We wouldn't repeat yeah. ourselves. You know, <laughs> we're not stepping on any toes. But not at all. first of all, I guess let's talk about your personal memories and experiences with Office sure. Space because. You're a bit older than me, just a, a couple years. Uh, and <laughs> thank you, thank you, John. You will probably remember this movie coming out at the cinema. Maybe you went and saw it or heard about it a bit later. But I was definitely uh, coming to it much later, being only about eleven years old when it was released. I think okay. so. Yeah. What was your original experience? Now you didn't see it at eleven, did you? Because that would be hilarious. No, okay. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so for me, it's interesting. One of the funnest things about talking about this movie is I have very vivid memories of when I first saw it, and I, I could tell you the story. So, it came, of course, as we know, it came out in February of 1999, but I, I, it wasn't on my radar mm-hmm. at all when it hit the theaters. It, you know, it did, it hit the movie theaters apparently to a very dull roar anyway. I think it barely recouped its production budget, yep. which is which you know, and it became a cold hit much later on with the advent of it hitting home video but for me to make Mm. a long story as short as i can i went to art school college in philadelphia and i graduated in 98 and then i i was in la for a little while and then i moved back to new york so i was away from philadelphia but many of our great friends were still living in philly and it was our tradition every year to go to philadelphia for the fourth of july starting in 2000 and we would just go up there and party we would drink we would, you know, watch the fireworks and get we would get loaded and everything like that, get smashed, and then stay at our friends' houses downtown. So <laughs> it must have been July fifth. I woke up at my friend Rick's apartment, and we were completely hungover. I mean, we were just in really bad shape. It was one of those hangovers that you, I'll always remember it. Like it was just an epic. Couldn't bear sunlight. Couldn't bear the thought of food. Like one of those, <laughs> one of those epic just. Shittiest hangovers, like swearing up and down, I'm never gonna drink again for the next 48 hours. You like really think that you really believe that you're never gonna do it again and stuff. It was that bad, and we were bored and we didn't have anything to do. So the movie Office Space, I can't remember for the life of me if it was the VHS or the DVD, but I believe it was a VHS copy. Was literally sitting on my my friend Rick's roommate's dresser. And I was like, office space, what's that? I, you know, I told my friend PJ, whatever, just pop it in. Like, we got to watch something. I'm going crazy here. And I loved it. I instantly loved it. And I, it was one of those movies. It was one of those things, those little pieces of pop culture that sort of comes into your life from out of nowhere. It's like, wh- why have I never heard of this movie? Which is really weird to me because especially um, living up in Connecticut, I worked at a big animation studio up there of about 150 people. And I worked with a lot of cinephiles up there who introduced me to, you know, I, I was introduced to like Wes Anderson up there. I was introduced to a lot of things I had never heard of. They would go to like Alfred Hitchcock film festivals on the weekend. Like, so it was really weird that I had never heard of this movie. Plus, you know, it being by Mike Judge of Beavis and Butthead fame, of course, and all that. Like, yeah, it's it's a little strange that it wasn't on my purview, but it wasn't. And I instantly fell in love with it. And we watched it like two or three times over that next 24-hour period. I mean, that's how much I really dug it. Wow. And since then, I've probably see, I've probably sat down to watch the movie a couple of dozen times, but I've probably seen it all the way through at least a dozen times, at least. 
It's just one of yeah, those yeah. utterly watchable, just just a joy to watch, just a light watch. It's not a it's not a heavy watch in any way, and it's just funny. I love the you know I love the cutting satire, and I'm sure we'll get into all that kind of stuff. But that yeah, that was the inauspicious beginnings of Office Space with me, and I, I still love it. It's mm. held up really well for me over the last twenty years, believe it or not. Yeah, that's interesting because I guess especially working in animation and presumably with animation nerds, I would have thought that some of them had been a fan of Mike Judge and anticipated his first big movie or whatever it might have been, but I guess that wasn't the case. Yeah, which and it's really it's odd on a lot of levels too because I even had teachers, some of my professors at art school, um, a couple of them actually went out and worked on the Beavis and Butthead movie for a little while and then came back. Beavis and Butthead and and we were I was already a big fan of Beavis and Butthead in my, you know, in my high school years. And and Mike Judge and Liquid Television and, you know, everything that we'll talk about that the office sprang out of. But yeah, it's really strange that it wasn't on my radar. And it reminded me too, like Mike Judge has also since fallen off my radar again as much as I love him. And just looking <laughs> at his modern filmography, and his the TV stuff he's involved in, I have to catch up. Like I fall, I've have yeah. fallen behind on Mike Judge, and I, I really love him. So I, this show, doing this show, it's, it's a nice perk that it reminded me. I have to catch up with his con- the stuff he's producing. Mm. I think what you're saying though speaks to the fact that this movie bombed so badly and just wasn't very marketable, really, when it comes down to it. Right. I think it's a hard sell in a lot of ways, and we'll get into the reasons for that a bit later. But uh, essentially, from what I've been able to research, the movie cost $10 million to make and it made $12 million. So, you know, in, I guess, Hollywood terms, that's considered a bomb. Yeah. And it really was a slow burn as far as the popularity. Uh, from doing some research, I found that uh, it was, yeah, over the next few years. There's a great oral history article on theringer.com if people want to check that out. But oh, cool. Mike Judge was, I remember reading he was at a cafe and the baristas were like quoting the movie and the person that he was with said like, are they doing that because of you? And they didn't even know. Or, no, he asked, are you doing that because Mike's sitting here? And they said, who's Mike? You know, like, <laughs> they didn't know who he was. Wow, that's great. <laughs> so it was just a thing by osmosis, I guess, where it just leaked like like the party you went to it leaked from one person to the next and you got to check out this movie and then eventually people were yelling lines at gary cole and (laughs) you know they're signing red staplers at conventions or whatever it might be and that kind of thing so you know it's a it's an amazing story of a movie that's done so much better post release than at the cinema yeah yeah really found its audience after the fact and i could see that and you know the other thing that spoke to me about this movie that i should say and it actually reminds me of the girl andrea my friend rick's roommate who was around my same age we were i was just of that age you know being a gen xer right i was just coming i was barely out of school i was out of school for about a year and a half two years and i was coming into the workplace just like these guys were very similar age. Now, you know, and I work in animation studios, but animation studios are offices. They're just offices with hmm. a little creative flair. You know, so I could already relate to all of the inner workings, all the office politics and the kiss asses and the rebels and, you know, all the different personalities. It, it made sense to me. It spoke to me because I was actually going through that at the time for the first time, too. So it really it really spoke to my own reality. I really was able to relate to it. Which made it a lot of fun because, you know, as we'll talk about, we know these characters. You know, everybody knows 
all of these characters. There's an iteration of each one of these characters <laughs> in our in yeah. our own lives. And I think that's what makes it so special. And that's what makes Mike Judge's humor yeah. so special too. He has a real he's really in touch with that, you know, parodying those real life things and making them feel realistic. As as comedic and cartoony as they oh, yeah. are, it could be really it could feel really realistic. And I love that. Yeah, he really went out of his way to make this office feel realistic as far as like the set designers would come in they'd you know decorate a cubicle and then he would go in there and pull out like half of the stuff in there and make it look way more boring and way less interesting and because he's like no this is not what an office looks like it has to i love that it has to be bleak and just terrible (laughs) you know i love it and I, I, I think the only like the only concession they made was making the cubicles I think lower so that you oh sorry higher so that you could kind of only just see people's heads as you look across I guess for the visual gag of kind of uh, Lumberg approaching like a like Jaws or something <laughs> as he's gonna ask Peter to come into work on a Saturday <laughs> right, exactly but yeah for me that my introduction to this movie I think was just as a lot of 90s movies because I was a little bit younger hearing about them hearing that they were influence on different shows and I got really into The Office in like 2003 2004 the the Ricky Gervais UK version and I know he was really influenced by American humor and listed like Office Space and the Larry Sanders show and Seinfeld and The Simpsons as like big influences on his work. Oh, wow. Cool. And it's hard to imagine like The Office existing without Office Space because they both capture that monotonous boredom of working in an office when you're not thrilled about what your job is and (laughs) the characters that you have to just endure because they work next to you. And yeah, like growing up, uh, and having experienced different workplaces in like I've always worked in office environments and I've enjoyed every job I've had most of the time but you definitely have days where you don't want to be there and these things ring so true and that's really what I think makes this movie just resonate with so many people absolutely absolutely yeah you said it you nailed it right on the head and you know what's also interesting about it I don't think you necessarily need to work in a quote-unquote white-collar office environment. I think these personalities and sort of those feelings, as you said, of like monotony and drudgery and, you know, wanting to, you know, just wanting to get through the workday and dealing with, you know, overzealous Mm. supervisors, I think it could apply to working in a restaurant. It could apply to working retail. Whatever you're doing, I think you have that. As long as you work with people, and in you know an oppressive or mm. what you what you sense at least is as an oppressive environment. I think it, as long as you're working in that, I, I would go as far as say even if you're just unhappy in the workplace, you know you could always construe. I think everybody yeah. can relate to stuff in this movie, which makes it really universally appealing. Yeah, I think even just being in school, which I was when I watched it, uh, or working at a supermarket or something, you can definitely relate. So, absolutely, boredom is universal. Yeah, you said it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Of course. So um, we're looking. I'm looking at the Rotten Tomatoes score for this movie, gauging how the critics saw the film. Have you got any guesses as to what the score is out of a hundred? No, you know what? I didn't research this, so I'm gonna be. Let me think. Mm. Knowing mm. how bad it did, you know, but that doesn't necessarily talk to its critical reception. Um, yeah, let me guess. I'll I'll say seventy-eight. It got a seventy-eight. 
Dagon got an 80. Wow. So that's a really good guess. Okay. Nice. <laughs> you nailed it. I'm not usually good yeah. at that. So I guess, you know, people people enjoyed it. It's just was a really hard film to market. And from my research, it looks like that was a huge frustration for Mike Judge, even down to the poster for the movie, which by now is this iconic image of Milton standing next to a guy covered in post-it yes. notes. It really says nothing about what the movie's about, doesn't it? Not at all. And have you seen... I actually got a chance to check out the trailers on YouTube when I was researching for the sh- doing the show right. with you. It's They're really bad. Yeah, they really didn't know how to market these these films. And it's, it's always odd to me <laughs> that they don't involve the creator more. I mean, you have Mike Judge... He's a, you know, he has a very specific creative vision. He wrote the film, he directed it. It's really, it's always odd to me when they don't get the creator involved in the marketing. You know, I don't know what that is. So what's the focus of the trailer? The trailer is really odd. It has the one trail, one of the trailers I saw had really bad graphics. It almost had, it almost seemed to have like an aerial font. It would show a little snippet of the movie and then it would like cut to a black screen with white aerial font. And the font wasn't even like, I, um, I don't know if it was aerial font, but something really generic. And then the font wasn't even like centered right, but it wasn't even done ironically. It was just done poorly. And then it would be like, they right. just took all these snippets out of context and you couldn't really get, you couldn't really bear down on getting what the threat of the movie was mm. from the it 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 did the the movie a complete the trailers did the movie a complete disservice, so I'm sure people were sure. not yeah. you know people had to probably be fans of like Mike Judge and make the connection especially back in the 90s people weren't as pop culture savvy back then, at least the mm, you know the yeah. same number of people weren't so you couldn't say oh this MTV. This guy who's always on MTV, his animations are always on MTV. Now he's got a live action movie. It's not even like people could really track that back then. There wasn't the same sense of nerdum. I mean, there was there were people, but there were much fewer people that could, you know, could track yeah. that or could, you know, follow that. Yeah, and I think like saying like from the creator of Beavis and Butthead isn't gonna really bring in people who have no idea what Beavis and Butthead is because exactly. it just sounds so stupid. Exactly. <laughs> And it is, but it's, you know, it's, it's not the same subtlety as Office Space. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I, I think it was probably a, a, a hard movie to market for those people with that job. And we'll get to the reasons why a bit later. But I've got some of the, the critic remarks at the time. Oh the LA Times said that the more you peer beneath the surface humor of Office Space, the scarier and more serious its vision of contemporary existence becomes. <laughs> I thought, wow, wow. <laughs> that is deep That's for a, a movie deep. review, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And then the San Francisco Chronicle said, Livingston is nicely cast as Peter, a young man, uh, sorry, a young guy whose imagination and capacity for happiness are the very things making him miserable. <laughs> <laughs> he is great. I really, I really like him in this he's good yeah we'll get to his career in a little bit but first dagan what do you think the number one song could have been when this movie released in 1999 oh the number one ago? the number one song on the top 40 charts billboard 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 um that's a great question in 99 when it was in th- oh wow i don't even know i was so out of touch with like what were you listening to music. back then <laughs> back then late 90s was almost exclusively hip-hop music Right. That was a really, I mean, I always loved okay. hip hop music. I still do. But that period of time, yeah, I was like really entrenched in hip hop. Um, 
God, I don't, I don't think you'll guess you this do. then. I don't think. Yeah, give me. So, it. I don't... <laughs> it's uh, "Angel of Mine" by Monica, which isn't a song on my radar. I don't even know at it. All. No, I don't even know that. Yeah, song. me neither. Angel of Mine. And then, yeah, like, okay. the movie released a couple of months later in Australia, and by that point, the number one song here on the Aria charts was "Baby One More Time" by Britney Spears. Okay, that makes sense. Which you know is that an absolute banger sense. of a of a pop song. <laughs> that is yeah. true. Wow, I you know I should have really guessed that for for hours. I should have guessed that for hours. I guess it can, I was I would be a little early. <laughs> yeah. So what have you done for me lately, Ron Livingston? You mentioned fantastic in this film. Uh, he's worked pretty consistently. He was on Boardwalk Empire in The Conjuring. He did a movie last year called Tully, but he hasn't really had the you know big leading role success that we might have thought he could. No. Would you agree with that? I, I would. I mm. think the first time I saw him, you know what? Now I'm thinking if I saw him first in this film or if I saw him first in Swingers, in the film Swingers. Right. I, don't, yeah. um, I don't know. Great movie. He has a yeah, great movie. He has a relatively big part in that. I'm not sure which came first for me, actually. I can't remember. But I know him from mm. that. And I know him, of course, from Band of Brothers, HBO's miniseries Band of Brothers, who, which, he's mm. very go- which he's very good in. Have you seen that, Jono? Have you seen that series? Not enough of it, no. Okay, he's, he's very good in that. Looking forward to the, the knockback episode on that one. Yeah, that's definitely going to be one. Colin <laughs> loves it, too. Maybe we'll do that one with my yeah. dad. My dad's really in love with that series, too. Right. There's a theory that uh, Ron Livingston could have been market corrected by Kyle Chandler. You know, this theory where there's only room for one person in hollywood of that type and uh kyle chandler like friday night lights he was in argo sure oh yeah they have like they have a they have kind of a similar look and they have like a similar presence and sometimes you get get someone like this like tom hanks and michael keaton where one of them just becomes like the go-to guy for that particular type of role and i could impacts the other person's career and We've seen, I think we've seen that a lot in like, it feels like in the last 10 years, Amy Adams has had like every huge, great, great role uh, for people like her. And it's probably impacted a lot of other people's careers in the process. But yeah, I wonder without Kyle Chandler, we might have seen a bit more of Ron Livingston in Hollywood. That's a great, that's really a great point, you know, because there's types and unfortunately that's just the way it is. I don't remember. Mm. You know what's funny? I don't know if I got all the way through Boardwalk Empire, but I cannot remember him from that move, from that series. I can't think of who yeah, he I is. Yeah, I haven't seen him in it, but I think it's probably just some late of the later seasons. Okay, all right, maybe maybe that's why I missed him. It was cool that he, it mm. was cool that he popped up in that though. I like him. He's interesting because he's a good actor and he's also a pretty handsome guy. Um, yep. it is kind of weird that he doesn't <laughs> do a little more, you know. So Jennifer Aniston. She's started to do a couple more like Netflix movies lately. She was in a Adam Sandler movie this year called Murder Mystery. She was in one called Dumplin' where she's playing like a Miss America type pageantry community person. And then we've seen her in some movies. She was in Horrible Bosses and Office Christmas Party, both playing this like kind of powerful businesswoman type. Just now, like in the last few months, she's been in the Apple TV Plus, I think it's called, Morning Wars with Steve Carell and Reese Witherspoon. She's playing like a, a Good Morning America type news anchor. Oh, that's cool. I don't and even that's know. And that's a really interesting show. Like I've been watching, it's like a, about the Me Too movement and things like that. So it's uh, it's there, it's free on, on Apple Plus if, if you've got access to, to that. So oh, yeah, that's check cool. that out. Oh, that's really cool. And you know what? She came into this show at the height of her popularity with Friends. With yes, the Friends. You know, absolutely. She was, 
she was so big in that and yeah not only that she was this is like the kind of start of the brad pitt era for her like yes she was on every tabloid magazine and a big reason for like this movie being able to get made was like they had to bring in someone with a bit of pull a bit of a list sure credit. absolutely and ron livingston really wasn't that person at the time and no i think we can just get to it now instead of saving it for the trivia but they really wanted ben affleck and matt damon to get that role that eventually went to livingston believe it or not which is really cool because they wanted damon off of his off of you know he was just coming off of goodwill hunting and he had a lot of star Mm. power you know coming off of that everybody wanted him and you know what's funny Mm. i could see him in the role but i like livingston better as the every as the every guy you know Uh, he yeah that's definitely the thing, isn't it? Definitely. Yeah, for sure. And Ben Affleck, I just can't see. <laughs> no, I cannot I see, see Affleck him doing it. No, I can't see I love him Ben that. Affleck, but I think he just doesn't quite work. <laughs> <laughs> Not for that. Uh, David Herman, who plays Michael Bolton, uh, <laughs> he's been doing voice work, essentially. Bob's Burgers, American Dad, Futurama, King of the Hill, still tied to... Um, to Mike Judge, obviously, and they had a, a, a long kind of friendship and history before this movie. So he's not someone that I would have thought was like a a name cast type actor, but he was, I think, doing Mad TV at the time and trying yes. to get fired from that show by <laughs> scream, sc- screaming all his lines, apparently, and, and getting kicked off. Yeah. But he wanted to do this movie so bad that he, he got fired from Mad TV. <laughs> How cool is that? Yeah, he was uh, awesome. <laughs> apparently at a table read. Like, he wanted to get fired. I guess he's the only one. Apparently, he's the only one Mike Judge had considered mm. even while he was writing the movie. Like, he's like, you need to be in this movie. And he was under contract yeah. to Mad TV. And, yeah, was just at a table read one day and, like, screaming all his lines until they just, like, you got to go. You got to go. You know, just <laughs> purposely trying to get fired. So, And he's so good. I, he's he's good, probably he? my yeah. favorite. Ca- he's probably my favorite character in the movie pound for pound yeah. i think he's i just think he's awesome he's so much fun yeah and he's so beat down by life just because of his name as well and i <laughs> often think about that like i meet people who have been named badly like their parents just almost it seems like deliberately gave them a funny name yeah, or yeah. like like some people have the same name as their last name and i'm just like who who would do that that's so hard like justin justin or jason jason and it's like <laughs> What are you thinking? That's so every funny. conversation with this guy is gonna be is that really your name? And yeah. you can just see he's so worn out from having this conversation over and over. <laughs> I wonder That's what great. is the thought behind I mean, my parents obviously named me something really strange too. My parents were like outrageous hippies in the seventies <laughs> and that's where it came from. But when you yeah, when it almost becomes but there's a difference between a unique name and a name that seems like torture, like you just said, like I wonder what yeah. is the thought process behind that. It must be like, well, you'll be unique, you'll stand out, no one else will yeah, have that. It has to be. It has to be that. Yeah. It has to be. <laughs> it's a great point. <laughs> John C. McGinley, who I love, like I'm a huge Scrubs fan, and he's such a great character on there as Doctor Cox, and this is probably like his biggest movie role that I can think of, or as far as like it being a popular film. Yeah, he's mostly done TV work since then, and. Uh, Chicago PD is his most recent series but unfortunately we haven't really seen him in films because I think he would be such a great kind of character actor to just come in and 
steal a scene here and there in a in a huge comedy film now and then. But what did you think of John C. McKinley? Absolutely, he's he really is a great character actor, and yeah, he's so much fun in the movie. I love Mike Judge. I watched some kind of making of documentary, making of Office Space documentary, and Mike Judge talks about McKinley coming in and really being almost as crazy as his character, like wanting to intimidate the younger <laughs> actors. And you can yeah. kind of see him in that role as one of the bobs. You know, they come in as these consultants and they're they're coming in, you know, essentially to, to basically enact a bunch of layoffs. And yeah. you can kind of see that with the character. He's in t- He's comedic, but he's intimidating. And you know what? Mike Judge mentioned something really interesting that I didn't realize and I haven't been able to go back and research. He said McKinley was involved in various projects by Stanley Kubrick. And I don't remember what he what Kubrick pieces he's in, but I gotta go back and look into the, his mm. filmography. Because you could see him as a serious character actor too. You could just see he has he has great timing and great comedic chops, but mm. you could just see through his acting in this film that he has great acting chops as well. He's a lot and he's a lot of fun. He's magnetic on the screen. You could tell yeah, he's having a good he's time awesome. when he's performing, you know, which is really kind of really yeah. kind of fun. I think he really enjoys this as part of his legacy as well. Like he always seems happy to talk about it and is proud of of it and doesn't understand why it didn't do well and that kind of thing. That's cool. I always love hearing that. I always love hearing when an actor like especially a more serious character actor could just kind of enjoy and and acknowledge the things that they've done that maybe didn't do as well. You know, it shows mm, a lot of, it shows yeah. a lot of character to me rather than saying, "Oh yeah, that piece of you know, and going along with the crit, <laughs> going along with the critics, yeah. So that's kind of cool that he does. Yeah. That. So Stephen Root as Milton, he's been in uh, Barry, which is a series I really want to check out. Bill with, Hader with Bill Hader. Yeah, it's really, it's really yep. good. The series is great. I'm about, I'm in this, I'm into maybe the seventh episode now or something. It's mm. very good, very good, very yeah. funny. So he's also in uh, Man in the High Castle, which I think Colin's a big fan of. Yes, he is. And Adventure Time. He's um, had a really great career, really. If you look at everything he's been in, and it's it's quite impressive, really. Great character actor. And you know what he's really good in? It's a really small part, but I always think of him when I think of this movie. It's um, He's in uh, No Country for Old Men. He has a very small part oh, yeah. in it, but very, you know, and all he has like breathtaking comedic chops but also he's just a great character actor he could do really serious roles as well he's very he's one of those dudes he's so versatile he could just do anything he's so much fun to watch yeah i just kind of assumed he was a comedy actor because of the things that i knew him from but it seems like he's pretty keen to do a lot more than that yeah very well-rounded very well-rounded dude and really like the only guy that could have played this character which was already established from like the animated series I, I wanted to talk about this before so we might as well say it now we sure. were uh, aware of the way that this show started as an animated short and the content it was based on i only really made the connection later because i saw the milton mm. shorts i was really really into liquid television when i was in high school which was the animated anthology series that was on mtv in the 90s it started in the early 90s and I I knew of the Milton Shorts from Liquid Television, but I never put two and two together until later that that's what Office Space sprang out of. Now, when did okay. you find out about that? Because you're you're much younger than me, as well. Um, well, I still haven't really seen them. I've just kind of watched parts of them on YouTube to see where the inspiration came from sure. for the film, and it's very much like that character was established in that animated short and based, I think, on people that 
Mike Judge had worked with. So that's really, I guess, where it all started, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I love that it's based on his, you know, he had he had some kind of like really crappy database entry office experience. And then later on, he was an engineer in an office. So he pulled from a lot of real life experiences and real life, you know, colleagues for the movie, mm. which I mean, that's, you could see that it, there's a there's a truthfulness to it. There's so much that rings true in this movie, as funny as it is. Yeah. And the other actor that was kind of brought in to play a character from the short was Gary Cole as Lumberg. Oh, so good. And he's he's so good. Recently, we've seen him on The Good Wife. He's been on Veep and also done some animated work with Bob's Burgers and Family Guy. But Gary Cole, I think, I, I remember in the oral history reading that Mike Judge wasn't really sure how another person could take away his character that he'd created and voiced, but then Gary Cole came in and did it so well. Oh, with so you know, good. It's almost word for word in some of the scenes about... Just the whole, I'm gonna have to go ahead and disagree with you there. You know that kind of <laughs> that kind of way that he goes. Absolutely. Oh, he's yeah, he's, dude, so, he's so much this. fun. He's so much fun, dude. And he also played. Am I correct? He he played Mike Brady in the Brady Bunch movie, didn't he? That sounds right. I think. Yeah. He's I'm gonna look that, that up real quick. I definitely. mean, he's yeah, yeah, he did. Which is hilarious that he. <laughs> I always think of him in those two roles. I think of him as Mike Brady in the Brady Bunch movie, and I think about him as. Lumberg. I mean, Lumberg is just like, he might be, I mean, pound for pound, he might be the most memorable character. I might argue he's the most memorable character because he's so yeah, swarmy, definitely. you know, he's so swarmy and he feels so real. He feels like, you know, one of those guys that would abuse his power and he's, he's just kind of shitty, but he's passive aggressive. You know, it's, it's not, you yeah. know, all of the things he does is under the surface and he just seems like such a miserable dude. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, he's never he's never actually going to be forceful. He's just kind of very passive, but at the same time, because he's the boss, he just kind of expects everyone to listen to him. Right, fall in line, exactly. Yeah, and the last guy I want to mention, there's you know so many actors in this film, but Diedrich Bader, who plays the neighbor, and I can't remember his name at this point, but Lawrence, 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 right, Lawrence. So he's yeah, no, he's great in this film, and he's done some work on like BoJack Horseman, some voice work which is a great series on Netflix. A quick shout out for him for just one of the, what the great roles in this film. And apparently, did you hear, oh, what? I don't know where I saw this, if I found this out a long time ago or recently, but a couple of famous actors tried out for this role, which is a relatively small role in the movie. Big actors. I think it was, Vin, they said Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson. Yeah. Both tried out for this part. And it's really telling that he got it, but... I can't see anybody else in the part, you know, from the attitude to the mullet to the yelling through the walls to, to come watch the breast <laughs> the breast exam on Channel 9. Like, he's just that yeah. dude, you know. He's <laughs> Yeah, the mullet really makes it work. The handlebar moustache really makes it work. <laughs> All right, let's get to the categories. This is, this is going to be one of our longer episodes, but I'm absolutely up for it, Dave. Okay, okay, let's do it, my friend. What is the most 90s moment of Office Space? Mm. You know what? Really, it comes from me. The first, the I, there's a lot of '90s moments in this, but the one that comes from me right from the beginning is the traffic jam scene in the beginning. And I say <laughs> that from being I'm a little bit of a car guy. I like cars, and I I have been for many years. And it's just all of a sudden you you this movie starts. The opening credits is a traffic jam where the main characters are frustrated being stuck in traffic, trying to get to work. 
and it's all 90s model cars. There's a 95 Corolla. There's, oh, okay. a, there's a 94 yeah. Celica. There, you know, there's a, a 93 Ford Explorer. So for me, it's like it just takes me as a car guy. It just takes me right into the 90s, which is really mm-hmm. funny. It's a really funny way to start the movie because you would. it doesn't show a lot of foresight, actually, because not that it really matters, I mean, if you have to show a traffic jam, you have to use contemporary cars to that time, but it automatically dates the movie. It's almost like watching an episode of Chips or something. It's like all of a sudden it's like Highway Patrol. Like the whole thing is about cars. So like you're automatically like pulled right into the 70s, you know, so that's good, though. Like I I like that. Yeah. You know, so I it's it's uh it's already nostalgic for me as soon as this movie opens. It's like, oh yeah, all right, that's right. This movie's twenty years old. Look at those cars. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what about for you? What's yeah, the most nineties cool. thing for you in that in the movie? There's a few things that I wrote down, but I think the one that stands out the most is the fact that they're preparing for what they call the two thousand update <laughs> and the Y two K. Of course, like I think you, I think I feel like you guys have talked about this on Knockback recently. Oh God, for some it was reason. it was huge, it was huge. Yeah, it might have been it might have been an episode of another podcast, but I feel like I've heard people talk about this recently. Actually, no, it was it was definitely Colin saying like he was looking forward to that New Year's Eve and seeing what happened and people like prepping for you know the chaotic dystopia that was beholden to clocks ticking over to the year 2000 but uh, in this movie they're preparing software or his job is to prepare software that's going to like fix the issue of the digits and that being referenced a couple times is such a 90s thing like it really could only be a 90s thing that is that is complete perfect perfect point i i mean in real life you were really young John O, but in real life, mm. I remember being because I was what I was in my early, I was in my mid twenties, early to mid twenties. That was like, yeah, people were really fretting about it. The only reason my yeah. my specific group of friends weren't really stressing out about it was because we had we had a really really smart friend. He like graduated at the top of his class. He went to MIT. He went to Carnegie Mellon for graduate school. He was just like a really he's a and he works in Silicon Valley now. He's like has all these tech startups and stuff really smart dude named Jeff who would tell us like, dude, it's fine. Like you guys don't understand. Like it's going to be fine. His dad, his dad was actually a nuclear scientist and he would say, he would always give us peace of mind and console us like be like, and we just took it from him because we were all idiots. We all went to art school. You know what I mean? (laughs) It was like, we had Jeff. Jeff was like, it's, it's really going to be fine. There's nothing's going to happen. So yeah, Yeah, but that's a great point. Reading about it. Yeah. I, I was probably more of a news junkie at that point than I am now. Because I'd get up and read the newspapers in the morning with my dad, and I remember like seeing it on the news. But yeah, feeling like I never really felt any dread about it as a young young chap. But uh, yeah, it all worked out, didn't it? Absolutely, yeah, it worked out. Thank <laughs> because goodness. Because because of people like Ron sitting That's there and doing their due diligence. <laughs> Ron, Samir, and Michael. Thank God for those guys. Yeah. The other. 90s things I wanted to just give a shout out to. I always like to talk about the technology because that's the thing I feel like that instantly dates something for me. And there's so there's the computers, the I think they're Mac computers that he's using at work. Right. If I'm not mistaken. I don't even know. I feel like the operating system, like when he's waiting for the disk to save, like we got a pretty good look at it and I feel like it was a, an old Mac, but okay. I could be wrong. 
they're old, but they're old. Yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> There's definitely like a DOS screen, like uh, you know, where it it pops up and it's the black screen with you know you're typing like C colon slash and entering the commands that way. <laughs> exactly. In his um apartment, we see there's a Nintendo 64 next to the TV. So that's, that's right. Obviously, super 90s, and I guess it's just the whole answering machine being used for gags and stuff like that is also super 90s. Yeah, and no cell phones. Nobody has a cell yeah. phone yet. I don't think there's one in the home. Yeah. No, I researched. I Just in case I missed one, I was like really trying to find out. Is there a cell phone in the entire movie? I mean, not even talking about smartphones. Just talking about really ancient, early, mm, yeah. you know, late 90s, early 2000s cell phones, flip phones or whatever. Yeah, so that's yeah. it's really telling that those aren't those aren't in there, and the fact that they're working, they're so from an off somebody who works in an office, the fact that they're so reliant still on paper documents yes. rather than just emailing <laughs> files to each other, like they're you know the TPS reports and all that kind of stuff that <laughs> has gone by the wayside quite a bit. So mm. you know that's a that was yeah. a different era where they actually used paper. We get a good look at some floppy disks as well, which is cool. I love that's floppy disks. Right, that's right. <laughs> The three and a half inch. Floppy yeah. disks were old. Those were even old then because we, at least in art school, we were using um, like zip drives and we were using, what what do they call them? Um, Like SyQuest disks. Uh, you're not even going to know what that oh, okay. is. You're too, no, I don't you're too know young. what that is. They were like really Side expensive. Quest. They were like really expensive like upgrades to floppy disks. Mm. And they were like okay. $70 or $80 a piece or something. Yeah, it was just like, re, you know, like remote storage, like before before CD-ROM, right before CD-ROM became the advent of, you know, storage technology. Sure. But yeah, yeah. oh, that's so we, funny. I remember, like, we used floppy disks at school, in high school, right up until, like, 2003, 2004, so... Wow, that's pretty late. Yeah, it was like the a, a crossover where we... St- there were USB, like, flash drives, but they were only, like, 100 megabytes or something, so... Right, they were could, so tiny. You know... Yeah, like today they're tiny, but back then it was like, well, you could put a whole album on this or, you know, <laughs> crazy yeah, to think. So cr- I know, and look how far it's come in such a short time. It's jarring mm. to think about. You know, this is 20 years we're talking about. You know, mm, yeah. They didn't even have cell phones. Now we're talking about everybody has a computer in their pocket. <laughs> it's n- it's yeah, nuts. I, it's nuts. I feel like if anyone in that movie was going to have a cell phone, it would have been Lumberg. I remember my dad got one in 97. Wow, that's early. It wouldn't have been everybody that, that had them, definitely. But uh, the, the other kind of two things I wanted to shout out for the 90s was looking up money laundering in a dictionary <laughs> towards the end of the movie. <laughs> That's right. Like just they having did. a dictionary in your house that you refer to is not something people would have done. Oh, I guess maybe in the early two thousands, but come on, we, we've got uh, we maybe. got phones and the internet for that. <laughs> maybe, yeah, they had. I mean, we didn't have Google, but they were using Yahoo and stuff like that in the early two thousands. Yeah. So yeah, there were search engines. <laughs> it might still have been. It might have been quicker to look it up in a book than jump onto the dial up and and type mm. in the word though. <laughs> Good point. It's, good it's point, not like friend. it is now. That's true. Very good point. And then the music for this movie, Dagan, like gangster rap is dominating the soundtrack for this movie. Definitely. And, Definitely. and this was a time where hip hop, like you're much more of the expert on this than I am, especially being a bit older, but it wasn't mainstream. And I think they had to push to include so much of it in the soundtrack, but it was important to Mike Judge. And I guess it was a moment in time because it was just starting to become music that wasn't just for black people. Is that something that you you would be able to relate to as mentioning that was what you were listening to at the time? Like the music that they're listening to, does that reflect Dagan? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny. I, there, a lot, a couple of things speak to me about the hip hop music, the rap music specifically in the movie. First of all, Mike Judge is older. You know, he's a good 10 or 11, 12 years older than me. He was born in the early 60s. So I like the fact that somebody of his generation, not a Gen Xer, so I like the fact that somebody of his generation was in touch with the fact of that rap music was very important to the Gen X generation. And the Gen Xers are the people who adapted, you know, rap music came from much earlier in the, you know, in the 70s. But when it was adapted by kids in the suburbs, it was the Gen Xers that were doing that. It was my generation that took that, you know, sort of um, sort of gravitated towards hip hip hop and rap music and loved it. And the fact that it's part of the movie, especially for the Michael Bolton character, is so funny because I knew so many kids like that. Uh, and then later on, guys <laughs> like that in the workplace that were very unassuming, almost look like nerds or dorks in the t- typical, you know, the prototypical 80s way, but were really into hip hop music. And I love the fact that Michael Bolton specifically is into gangster rap. You know, he has like a gang star poster yeah. in his cubicle and a ghetto boys poster in his cubicle. And he's listening to Snoop Dogg and he's listening to um, he's listening to the ghetto boys. There's a couple of ghetto boys songs in the soundtrack. So I love that because it is very indicative of the 90s where, mm. you know, it wasn't, you know, rap music was not just an urban thing anymore. It was really proliferated into the suburbs. You know, I would say as early as like 89, 88, 89, yeah. where it became more mainstream. So I okay. like that because it's it's very truthful. It's It, it, it rings true in any yeah. suburb of that era. There's that great scene in the traffic jam where he, sees the guy coming and turns the music down and locks his car door. And it's <laughs> locks like, his door. <laughs> is it... And I, I, don't, I still don't know exactly what the they're referencing there. Like, is he afraid that the guy won't approve of him listening to the music? Is it like some casual racism that there's a black yeah, guy approaching him? Yeah, that's what it him? is. Yeah. Yeah, it's like growing up, like, oh, you see, a, you know, you're a, it's a kid, you're a, you see, a, you know, a, a, a typical sheltered white kid would be, you know grow up in that environment hopefully not but a lot of them did grow up in that environment where it's like oh there's a there's a guy coming you look shifty so lock the door but at yeah. the same time you're listening to gangster rap music <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah it's very funny it's a nice little contrast there exactly exactly he's such a great character it's just to show you like he's someone that listens to this music but he's not a gangster. He's a nerd. Exactly. Exactly. He likes the music, but not really a gangster. I mean, look at him. Mm. Look at the Michael Bolton character. I mean, he's a lot of talk. He's all bark and no bite, right? Like, mm. look at what happens with the Bobs. He actually he actually admits to them that he likes yeah. Michael Bolton's music. That's <laughs> like he's completely spineless. Underneath it all, he's completely spineless. Mm. And I love that about the character. It's so funny. And that's a great transition into most iconic scene. Because for me, there's only one. It's the most cut and dry of anything I've talked about on this podcast. Oh, I want to hear this. Tell me, tell me. It's the smashing the printer. Like, how could it be oh, anything else? Like, God, it's so to me, good, like, dude. like that should have been the cover of the the movie poster and the DVD, because that's really, I think, sums up what the movie's about more than a guy covered in post-it notes. You know what? That really is a good idea for the for the movie poster because it does sum up the whole thing. It so it sums up you know being unhappy in the workplace, yeah. you know fighting the, against the, the system and yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, that's a great. I mean that scene, you know, set to that iconic Ghetto Boys song. You know, you mm-hmm. have the three guys, the three main characters in their shirt sleeves with the baseball bat, 
and the way it's shot, it always fe- it always felt like a gangster movie to me. Like you know, guys getting revenge on their ultimate nemesis, who they have you know tied up in the trunk, and who they <laughs> they need to obliterate at all costs. And it turns out to be this yeah. printer, and the way they're beating it up, and the way they're like glaring at it and snarling and they act like they have this deep deep seated hatred for this thing and i love the build-up to this moment too because you see them yeah all three of them at different iterations getting really frustrated with the printer so i love that this is like the payoff scene i i agree i mean it's probably one of the most you could talk about a lot of there's a lot of iconic scenes in this movie and we'll talk about one of your questions about memes later on but yeah, this is one of the most memorable scenes in the movie. It's it's so hilarious. It never gets old. I, I think like the movie yeah. <laughs> on, as a whole, so it funny. never gets old. <laughs> I actually, um, before watching this movie, I actually did smash a printer, Dagan. Really? <laughs> I did. So our uh, the, the school that I went to was like a, quite a small school. We'd have like our, uh, I guess, a school fair once a year, you know, big fundraiser for the school. And sure. as part of that, there was a little store where you could just go and buy other people's junk. And often it was, you know, vases and picture frames and Tupperware and that kind of thing. There was a printer that nobody bought and my mum was running the store that year. So I kind of claimed it and said, can I take this home? She said, yeah, sure. So I, I took it into the backyard and I smashed it. <laughs> oh my I God, just, that's amazing. I don't know. <laughs> Did you do it out of anger though? No, I just did it for fun because there's something <laughs> I I don't I don't know why, but there's something about being I guess an 11 or 12 year old boy. You just like breaking stuff and seeing how they work and like taking things apart. And I did the same thing when I was like 17 or 18, but with like a computer monitor that no one wanted. We, me and my friends, took it to like a abandoned woolen mill and just like threw it off a flight of stairs to see it smash because smashing <laughs> things is fun that's why we like destruction derbies that's why we like watching jackass because it's humans breaking themselves you know i was just gonna say jackass you took the words right <laughs> out of my mouth with that one yeah no absolutely i get it i that's hilarious it was good and you know what i did i, I had a hammer i think it was kind of a, a not quite a, oh. like a long sledgehammer but i smashed it and a big cloud of black ink rose like a mushroom cloud and that, oh, i wasn't expecting that it took me by surprise wow yeah that's crazy <laughs> it left some so residue it left some residue around like the cement underneath and everything wow so it, it kind of puffed up almost like a gas rather than just spurt out like a liquid yeah yeah it, it was like a, a cloud like uh wow I, I guess the toner or whatever it's not like a wet ink it was just like a dry kind of, yeah holy was- shit that's funny <laughs> That's what happens when you smash a printer. So I always think back to that to that moment when I watch Office Space and think, yeah, it does feel good. <laughs> That's great. That is great. Yeah. Now I want to do that. I want to do that to my printer. I hate this thing. Printers are still the worst. Take your son They're into terrible. like a field, you know, and uh, when, you're, when you're done with that printer, instead of selling it to, to someone on Craigslist for $20, just smash it. You'll have a lot more fun. Oh, it's so worth it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. I might do that. I might do that now. <laughs> <laughs> It sounds like they enjoyed that scene, but they they were um they had a few printers and they were like every time they smashed something they would take all the bits that came out and put them back inside so that when they hit it again, all the parts would just fly out and oh, dude, make it look so as dramatic as possible. I've got a little so quote cool. here from the oral history and it's with Willie D from the Ghetto Boys and of course it's their song playing during that scene. Of course, yeah. And he says uh, we actually did a Office Space Ghetto Boys tour in 2015. 
we had some office furniture on the stage and part of it was we had a printer and we smashed the printer with a bat. So we reenacted the scene with the music. What? That is the best thing I've ever heard. That is amazing. Yeah, that's so good. I, I need to find that on YouTube. Surely someone filmed that and put it up. Mm, good point. Good point. That's definitely on there. That could be found. Oh, I'm gonna, I want to see that. <laughs> we'll have a look after we're recording and we, we, might, we might share that together. Did you have a different scene for Most Iconic, Dagan? You know what? There's so many that I could think of. I mean, I, I think it's probably different for everybody what would be the mm. most iconic. I mean, there's also a kind of a fine line between what you would consider the most iconic and what you would consider just your favorite in general. But I think of the printer sure. scene, certainly. I think of the Bob interviews. Yeah, I had that as like a, a runner-up. Oh, they're so they're so good. The, I mean, those two guys are so funny together. And yeah. I think of the hypnosis, the Peter hypnosis scene, you know, where he's getting hypnotized. I think of the Lumberg, all the Lumberg Milton interactions mm-hmm. are very iconic. They became some of the most famous things in the movie. And Lumberg, you talked about this early on in the show. Um, Lumberg cornering Peter at his desk to get him to come into the office to work over the weekend because it's the moment I think you could get the most squeamish about. As uh, you know, somebody who works in an office for bosses, for supervisors, and you know them having unreasonable requests of their employees and stuff, I always get that one makes my skin crawl a little bit because mm. there's a realism to it and it's just a complete lack of justice to it that it just speaks to my the very depths of my soul. Like I feel so bad for Peter in that scene. Yeah, but yeah, for the for I would say those scenes those scenes stand out for me. Yeah, I had the meeting with the Bobs as uh, as a runner up. I think. Uh, them gushing about Michael Bolton is always funny. <laughs> like I celebrate his entire catalog. Like there's a bit of a bit of ad libbing happening in that scene, which comes through when you rewatch it. And the ending of the movie as well, like with the fire and the reveal that ah, oh, like this is the way he's going to get out of it. Milton actually went ahead and <laughs> set the place on fire. It's so That's good. fantastic. It's such a great ending. And especially because it's foreshadowed earlier, like one of the first times you see Milton, he says, I'm going to burn this place to the ground. And because of the way he delivers his lines, it's kind of hard to hear him half the time. Like, I don't really understand most of what he's saying. But yeah, um, yeah, Yeah, he's muttering. As far as Milton goes, the cake scene as well, like when he when he misses out on the cake, like that's just such a sad. (laughs) Oh, it's so sad. It's so sad, dude. I love that. I, you know what really speaks to me about this movie? And I don't think it really dawned on me until the last time I watched it when we were prepping to do the show together. Is that that birthday scene, that brief birthday scene where they're singing to Lumberg. It's Lumberg's birthday and they have a cake in the office. It really speaks to me about the office environment in general and how oppressive and sort of bleak it is. Because anytime they you try, in real life, not just in the movie... Anytime any kind of color is try, you know, is attempted to be injected into that environment, it makes it even more sad because, yep. <laughs> you know, you have it's in so many ways. Right. Because you have like these hastily strewn up party decorations. You have the cheap sheet cake and everybody's getting a piece and singing happy birthday sort of half heartedly. Mm-hmm. There's like a, it, none of it is is, you know, like from the heart. None of it, it, there's no sincerity behind it whatsoever. And it almost feels like that whole thing, like having cake for somebody's birthday or, you know, Hawaiian shirt day or crazy hair day or like a little in-office holiday party. And I've been through this. And I've been through this recently, too, that like a high school dance, a junior high school dance, like people (laughs) never really progress 
past being 14. You know, you have those little pockets of people <laughs> that know each other. They are all staying together. No one's really interacting outside of their little social circles. You know, yeah. that what they would normally would be take place around a water cooler or something. And it's so sad, like, when you try, it's almost better to just not try to inject any kind of humanity into that environment because it just comes <laughs> off as so sad to me. Yeah, and I think right. that's one of the funniest parts. I think that's one of the funniest parts of the movie, and I think that's one of the funniest parts of an office is, like, that whole thing. It's like, if you don't laugh, you'll cry because it's so sad. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the Hawaiian the Hawaiian shirt Friday was the thing that came to mind when you started <laughs> talking. So it's like, it's like really like this is your idea of like making a a gray world a bit more colorful, like a right. bit more fun. It's almost like forced fun just isn't fun. <laughs> See, we're hip, we're cool, yeah. <laughs> we're we're having fun. <laughs> it's like, mm. oh my god. <laughs> and it's it's a it's a very like nineties thing as well. Is is this like pre? I guess silicon valley i don't know if it's like a second or third wave boom but like this is a tech company in the 90s versus what they are now with the ping pong tables and the yes. you know the air hockey tables and bring your dog to work and all this kind of thing where yeah it's it's actually kind of cool but like the the at this point of, in that world it was very inauthentic and it was still overly corporate to the point to a fault really i guess that's a great and point dude i don't know if people have changed with startups and that kind of thing that's an but- awesome point yeah that's what it was that's a really great bit of insight john i like that point because this movie was filmed and came out right before the dot-com boom and mm. that was the advent of those creative spaces being you know the gen xers that were you know starting their own tech startups and you know creative startups and the advent of the arcade and the you know bar full of red bulls and the ping pong tables and the pinball machines and all that kind of stuff that's what came right after this movie so this is yeah. what yeah that's so funny that this is what it looked like right before <laughs> that basically <laughs> yeah it was almost like people said, no, we don't actually have to follow these rules of what, what an office is and <laughs> what corporate you know infrastructure looks like. Right. Let's rethink this whole thing. Now, it probably, in all fairness, advertising was probably what brought that in in the 80s, where it was a more creative environment. And it was also driven by a lot of money. Yeah. So they had the, they had the wherewithal and the success to be able to do that kind of stuff. But- on a larger scale, it was really the dot com boom, and then later the sil- mm. the whole Silicon Valley thing with the video game companies and you know the creative startups and all that kind of stuff, the tech startups. Mm. Okay, yeah, great, great point. Great that. point. So, what holds up the best, Dagan? And it's probably a hard thing to answer when it's a film that you revere so much. But is there anything that stands out to you as like you know that was great back then, and it's just as great now? You know what? It's just the overall sense. As much as things have changed, and we've been talking about this throughout the episode, as many things have changed with the tech and various things, the aesthetic and the environment and everything, it's the personalities. And the sort of feeling of that workplace environment, that oppressive Mm -hmm. workplace environment that holds up, that's sort of the main thread that still, for me, makes it hold up as a film and makes it entertaining and Mm -hmm. makes the comedy hold up, you know, and you have other things, the, the, the way the office feels, the overall feeling of the bachelor's apartment or condo, you know, the, the chain restaurant located near the office park. That type of thing. Now, the look of a chain restaurant has changed. It's become more sophisticated. It's not that 
tchotchke oriented tacky friday's environment anymore but it's still the same thing and just like we talked about already the awkwardness of trying to inject a social component to the office environment and the same thing with the backyard barbecue scene and how we you know how like the you know like that drew character that spiky blonde head character like that drew character (laughs) like it doesn't matter if it's 20 years ago 50 years ago or next week that awkward dude from the office that is a little too vocal about the girls that he wants to bang and the yep. girls in the office. You know what I mean? It's like that. that he's like wildly, in, the wildly inappropriate dude. It's those characters. Like they're that's never going to change. It's those that what that's what makes the movie hold up is that that through mm. line of those personalities. What about for you? What do you think? I think the use of gangster rap, as we mentioned before, holds up the best in the sense that it's so normal now. Like it wouldn't stand out at all watching. Like I watched, uh, started watching Office Christmas Party the other day. It's a movie I've seen before, but it starts with a hip hop Christmas song, and it's like just normal, like it's cool. But back then, it was kind of not abrasive, but it was something that apparently the studios really had to get assured of. Like the focus testing, they were almost saying, like, "Are you sure that you like the music?" Like, kind of trying to push people into saying, like, to to change it to something else. But that was really important to Mike Judge and it holds up really well, I think. And it really makes the movie seem ahead of its time in some ways. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. You said it. Yeah, perfectly said. Mm. And Lumberg, like, he's just still funny, still completely realistic portrayal of, you know, a boss who doesn't quite get how to motivate people and <laughs> what works Absolutely. For, Absolutely. for different employees. <laughs> yeah, and you know what's funny about Lumberg characters? You know, you have the, the upper management, the supervisor character, you know, the clothing may change, you know, the hairstyle may change, the model of Porsche may change, you know, he might have a nice, you know, 2020 Porsche now or something. But what's interesting about that character is that, yeah, the through line of his sort of that fact that he's this passive aggressive bully and he's sort of a, but he's sort of a joke at the same time, that character is always going to exist. But what's interesting about him is that He's not even inappropriate. It's not like some kind of Me Too thing or any kind of yeah. sexual harassment. He, This kind of guy could always operate a little bit with autonomy and get away with it because he's not really offensive. He's just a jerk. You understand what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> it, that kind of character is always going to exist. It's, it's, it's actually insidious in a way because they could get away with it for many years because they're not really doing anything out of line. It's just that they're socially, they don't know how to be a good boss. You know, they don't know how to be yeah, and he's taking advantage yeah. a human. There's no humanity there. Yeah. There's no humanity That's right. there. And it's probably arguable about how much work he's actually doing. <laughs> exactly. As, yeah. As he strolls, strolls around with his coffee and <laughs> yeah. His tepid coffee. I'm always like, oh, it's gross. Like he must have terrible breath. He's walking around drinking this tepid coffee. He's like, mm. you know, it's oh, it's, dude. He's 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 quite a memorable character. Yeah, I don't I don't th- know if there's anything funnier in the movie as well as the amount of times people ask uh, Peter about his TPS reports and like every <laughs> every every time it happens, it's like been long enough since the last time that it becomes funny again to the point where it. they're even they're even at like the tchotchkes and and like michael bolton asks him about it 
but yeah, the the whole thing of having multiple bosses, like I've worked in a few different places where that's been the case, and it is really frustrating, especially when they have different styles and they approach things from a different point of view, and they're all telling you what to do, and you're getting like conflicting directions i know that wasn't exactly the case with peter but it just speaks to like when he (laughs) is complaining about the fact that he has eight bosses it's like yeah there's problems oh that just speaks to the depths of my soul how wrong that is yeah it's like too many cooks in the kitchen and when you have and i've been in environments like this and it's sad you have too many bosses and what happens is you really you literally have too many bosses there's too many people Mm. supervising and it becomes a self-preservational thing for those people that are in the upper management positions to make it look like they're doing something. And what it effectively does is it just tortures everybody in the place. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you're dealing with things three and four times over that you should have dealt with once because <laughs> you have all these lords to serve. You know, it's just, it's broken and it, it does exist. And I, it's so funny in animation, it's it's a thing. And I'm not going to say where I've dealt with that and everything, but <laughs> it's always so frustrating to me because I'm like, we could bring in more creatives here. Why do I have six producers? You know, when I could, I, we could really use three more animators so we didn't have to work 60 hours this week. You know, that type of thing. It's like, yeah, it's it speaks to, it really speaks to yeah. me. It really does. At least you've only got one boss on knockback. There you go. But he is you know, a pain in the ass. And he's your younger brother. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, so this one might be even harder for you to answer, Dagan, but what holds up the worst? Yeah, I wanted to really think about this because we shouldn't just... We got we to gotta come correct. We got to be real. We can't just sing this movie's praises. We got to look for its weak spots, see if we can attack any of its vulnerable areas. <laughs> but... uh. You know what holds up the worst for me? I think we talked a lot about it already. What is that, you know, especially we talk about the TPS reports, the actual tangible amount of paper documents. Not that that doesn't exist anymore in today's workplace. There, we still deal with that. But, you know, it's not, you know, there's a, so much of it's done now, as you know, Jono, through via email and, you know, banks mm-hmm. of servers that store legions of documents and, that whole thing, you know, how the workplace has evolved from ba- basically paper to digital, that is something that stands out to me in the movie is like, well, you know, it doesn't bother me. It's the way it was back then. But that's, you know, seeing that it kind of it, it if anything takes you out of this movie, it's that it's just how much it's evolved and how you forget how it used to be, <laughs> you know, and smartphones. I mean, the the lack of smartphones, you know, and in fact, cell phones and let alone cell phones, but smartphones. And just like you said earlier, the computers and the cars and the tech is dated. So, you know, it brings you back. But for me, that's kind of fun. And that's part of what makes it nostalgic for me is like it brings you back to a very indicative era. It's not this colorless thing where it just spells out some generic era. It's very of the late 90s. And I that's what I dig about the movie. But if anything, you know, if anything sort of doesn't hold up, it's that for me what about for you i'm really interested in this question because it's a it's a tough one yeah i've alluded to it a couple times already but i think the marketability of this movie is hurt by the fact that it's almost two stories completely and okay this will become clear as i explain it but you think about like the first half of the movie it's essentially evolving around the whole hypnotism angle and the fact that it's the story about a guy who's had enough of work until one day everything changes he has a new attitude and you know 
the hilarity that ensues from that. So that's right. kind of like the story for like the first uh, hour of the movie. And that includes kind of this, I guess, somewhat rom com interaction he has with Jennifer Aniston. But then it kind of turns into this like heist movie where they're suddenly trying to <laughs> steal money from the company. And it really has nothing to do with the fact that he's been hypnotized. Like it's not his, his relaxed attitude isn't really motivating him to steal money. It's more just him being fed up like he was at the start of the film. So you could, they're it, almost two separate things. And I can imagine a trailer for the first half and a trailer for the second half. And both of those working to explain what the movie is. But when you put them together, it's like two stories. Does that make sense to you? Totally makes sense. And you know what's funny? I never really even thought about it in that regard. It's a really great point. Because you have, yeah, especially if you just isolate it to the Peter character, you have the Peter who's finally, and I love this theme about the movie, not to get sidetracked, but I love the fact mm. that this movie says in this professional office environment, you're only going to progress and move up when you finally just acquiesce and throw in the towel and literally stop caring. All the stress, all the worrying, all the due diligence, all the worrying about if your boss sees your, how good your performance is, all yeah. that means nothing. It's, only, it's all futile. Only when you actually literally get hypnotized into not giving a shit about anything <laughs> – is when everybody is when you're going to get that recognition and the accolades and the promotion and the pats on the back. I love that about the movie. I love it so much. But the, it's so funny yeah. about I love that that little message in there. But the Peter character that stops giving a shit and oh, one of the most iconic scenes for me that I forgot to mention is gutting the fish at the desk yeah. with the newspaper. <laughs> it's like the biggest it's... fu thing I could possibly think of. It's like, yeah, this guy, yeah. you could not possibly illustrate. It's almost that. aggressive. Isn't yeah. It? You couldn't illustrate that better as somebody who doesn't give a shit. That's gut literally gutting a fresh caught fish at his desk in an office <laughs> with cubicles. And like throwing it's it on the TPS reports. Yeah. But what I was trying to say is that there's, there seems to be two Peters. It's the one Peter who's like, lulled into this sort of submission of just saying like nothing matters i don't care about work anymore i don't give a about lumberg my supervisor i'm gonna stop going yeah. to work i'm gonna stop paying bills and then there's the one who was like Fuck this company we're gonna we're gonna steal everything they've got so yeah. that's the weird yeah that's a really great point that's a really awesome point it gets to be mm. it is really two separate things it's two separate personalities and i understand why peter does it because peter it's kind of cool for his character because he's getting he's sort of going up he's ascending through the heights he's getting a, a promoted to upper management the bobs love him there's nothing lumbar lumber could do about it but his friends are getting laid off and he takes hmm. exception to that and in order to like avenge them and you know sort of appease them and just he's he's being a good friend he says we're gonna do that you know we're gonna do this but yeah, yeah, you're right. It's it's if the the movie at that point is wearing two hats, which is really strange. It is. And it's a thing where it makes sense when you watch the movie and it's almost like a nice twist that it happens and it's like, oh, they're suddenly going to steal this money and it's going to turn into that kind of film. But if you're just trying to tell people what this movie is about in a couple lines, it's pretty hard to fit all that in and and make it sound appealing. And I think that's exactly why it was hard to promote it was hard to sell to people and possibly why it didn't do so well until word of mouth 
started to spread. I probably wouldn't even change anything because I love the way that it kind of turns. But yeah, I guess I can just see that's possibly why it was hard for those guys to, to pull it off. And they probably didn't know which way to go with it because they're thinking like, do we try and sell the Jennifer Aniston, you know, Peter relationship here? Do we sell the power fantasy of a guy being able to go into work and tell his boss that he doesn't care? Or right. is it like the story of when people decide to steal money from their company? Like that almost feels like more of the pitch for the movie. Like three guys decide to steal money and it goes wrong. Like that, it's, yeah, it's a long yeah. way of saying it's two kind of messages. Yeah. Yeah, they're trying to almost do too much. They're trying to juggle too many plates at that point. They're trying to spin too many plates, juggle too many balls. Yeah, and the interesting thing about the Jennifer Aniston character is that um, Peter's girlfriend, when we open the film, the Anne character, they don't really... They play up that she's kind of bitchy and she's controlling, and at least he alludes to that, and that she's possibly cheating on him and all that kind of stuff (laughs) but you don't really they don't really play up how bad she is now i know the point is to make it look like he finds this new girl in jennifer aniston that is like more of a soulmate you know they love kung fu it's like he's finding his way you know he's finding he's finding his new found philosophy on life and work and a career and he's finding his new he's finding a soulmate and everything like that so everything seems to be going right for him and falling into place i i get what they're doing there but they didn't really explore it in a any specific way and jennifer aniston's really good in this movie too she is yeah you know she's she plays a character who's a little hard to put your finger on she's she's a little complex like she seems a little space cadet She seems a little bit and, and awkward, but she's also very pretty. And she seems sort of sophisticated, but kind of stuck in a, in a lull at the moment. And she's a little, you know, she's a little silly. She's maybe a little, a little slow or something. I don't know. There's, she plays a really interesting character. She's not a type, hmm. you know, she's not just a pretty girl who's got it all yeah. together. She's, she's kind of finding her way too. She feels more realistic. There's a realism to her. What do you think about that character? With, I, I was just going to say, like, when he approaches her and asks her out for lunch, she's kind of, like, flustered and flattered. And then when she turns up, it's kind of like she is nervous and she's like, I can't believe I'm doing this, but I'm doing this. And she, she portrays that really well for, for someone that's mostly known for playing confident characters and, like, romantic leads. And more recently, I guess it's been a lot longer since then, but, like, powerful bosses and that kind of thing. So to see her like that is is interesting. And she was very much known for Friends at the time, obviously. Of course. And this is such a different character than what she was playing, even though they were both waitresses, I guess, for, for a part of it. But it was very different. And it was it was really good to see her play that role. And she's kind of like Peter's conscience for part of the movie and the reason that he does some of the things that he does later so she's very important to the movie she could have been involved more i guess the movie could have gone maybe a little bit longer and given her a bit more meaning to to be in the film right but yeah it's 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 a little half-baked her involvement in the whole like lumberg crossover thing but it's funny and i think ultimately everything works it's just it doesn't sum itself up into a nice little box, which is just a hard marketing thing, really, I guess. Yeah, that's it. I, I really agree with all those points. And you know what's interesting, too? It's only a hour 30. This movie only comes in at an hour 30. Mm. So they, they even kind of made it, you know, 8, 10, 12 minutes longer. 
and maybe explored a couple more things or fleshed out a couple more characters or, or relationships. But it does work on its own. But it's funny when you think about it in depth like that. And I think what's funny, it's it's nice to talk about it in such an in-depth fashion because you think about this movie, it's very light. It's an easy watch. It's a fun comedy to watch. You don't really – it's nice to kind of think about it a little more deeply. And I think you made a couple of good points with that for sure. I agree with all that. Thank you, Dagan. You got it, my friend. Well done. <laughs> I've thought about this. I've... So who would be most offended by this film? I think it's pretty inoffensive, so we might run through this one pretty quickly. But did you see anything in this film that might not hold up as far as you know being politically correct? Not. I can't think of anything. The only thing that I could think about not being politically correct, but it doesn't play off as it, do, it doesn't... Um smack of anything mean-spirited to me in the movie is Samir's name when they can't get Samir's last mm. name right yeah um but I don't think it's done in a in a hateful way or or a mean-spirited way I think it's just sort of I think it shows off the ignorance of the other characters actually if anything else that the what that yeah. not making an effort to pronounce his last name but also his last name is ridiculously hard to pronounce which is actually really funny <laughs> I think if you're not used to those types of names, they are really hard to say. Like, it's hard for Americans to pronounce Australian indigenous words and it would be hard for us to pronounce your indigenous words. Like, you think that they're normal. You think Cincinnati and Arkansas and... Yeah, right, right. Massapequa and all these things are normal sounding towns. But then if I start talking about Wagga Wagga and Warrnambool and Wodonga, you're probably going to be like, what the heck? Like, Right. And But that's just our towns and our cities down here. So it's just another example of what's normal for you isn't normal for someone else. And it goes to, to foreign names as well. Those are the best names for towns I've ever heard, by the way, those are awesome. The only, <laughs> oh, the only other thing, the only other people I could see the getting offended by this movie is actual upper management of, you that know, was office I had bosses. establishments. Yeah. <laughs> yeah bosses, bosses that are ba bad bosses, bad bosses, not yeah. Jennifer Aniston, by the way, isn't she in those bad boss movies? <laughs> Horrible bosses. Yeah. Horrible yeah. bosses. That's right. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, that's all. That's it. I don't think it's a very offensive movie. I think it's the satire is really. Um, I don't know. I think it makes you. I think it makes you think. But I think it could. I think a lot of people could relate to it. You know, mm. it's not mean. Doesn't doesn't seem mean spirited to me. There is mean spirited satire, right. but it doesn't seem like Mike Judge's style. Yeah, I'm with you. Okay, does Office Space pass the internet relevancy test, Dagan? Oh my God! Like, absolutely. Like as far, as far as like gifts and memes, you know, I, yeah. I mean, the whole movie is like Internet gifts and memes for me. You know, it's like just the Milton Adams character and the stapler thing alone is like that's mm. become like that's become parlance in pop culture dialogue. I mean, but that's how people talk to each other. It almost reminds me of something like Austin Powers, like you could talk to each other in Austin Powers quotes. You know, Lumberg's, yeah. um, yeah, that'd be great. You know, that whole thing, like imitating yeah. Lumberg, you know exactly <laughs> what you're imitating when you act like that. And I would even say that character, that real swarmy character, that Drew character from the backyard barbecue, the blonde headed <laughs> spiky guy, the, o, the, o the face. whole O face, the O face thing, you know, and the printer scene, the printer scene. I mean, yeah. you know, all of those things. So what do you think? Do you have a bunch yeah. of those two listed? Yeah, I want to hear. I these. think so. Yeah, I think that. A lot of the Lumberg ones, especially, like, I'm going to have to go ahead and ask you to come in. Like, <laughs> like anytime you want to ask someone to do something they don't want to do, it's just, I'm going to have to go ahead. And go just, ahead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, damn, it's it perfect. feels good to be a gangster. 
that was a big meme for a while and it's been used as like text on macros but also in videos where i guess to explain the meme it would be like something that's kind of nerdy but still kind of like they're doing something cool and it might just be like a a little kid that like you know flips off like his sister or something and then the music (laughs) starts playing and it's damn it feels good to be a gangster and that has to have come from like office space and the use of that song i think that's one that really holds up (laughs) yeah that makes sense that's a good one that's a great one yeah the 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 stapler (laughs) The stapler. We'll the, I mean, I, I've got a little. I've got a little note about the stapler coming up too. Okay. So okay. Cool, cool. How would smartphones and social media change office space, if at all? Well, you know what? I mean, just for the aesthetic of it, because it's like it's such a conspicuous accessory for everybody now. Everybody just has it all the time, even when they're not using it. It's in their hand. But it seems to me, I had to think about this a little bit. But it seems that it would be a lot harder. And I can think back to this time, too, with work and working, even menial jobs back in high school and college and stuff. It would be a lot harder for Peter to hide and duck work, at least with legit excuses, if cell phones was a thing. Because cell phones make us available, of course, 24-7. He couldn't really duck coming in on the weekend as easily (laughs) if he was able to get if they were able to get a hold of him via smartphone. You know, although I think him he just having, care, though. <laughs> yeah, I think Peter having like, let's say office space was done, redone in 2019. I think Peter having a smartphone would make it even funnier and more hilarious because he's he's ducking despite all that. You know, yeah. he's getting bombarded <laughs> with texts and calls and emails and he's still like not giving a shit. So I think that would be I think that would be really funny. And I think it would be also like social media and smartphones especially it's that's a big distraction for people in the office Mm. i've seen that as being a problem with people in the office all i could think about all the way back to like pre-smartphone the first in-office distraction was having like ethernet and doom you know it was like (laughs) nobody nobody was working you know it was like literally a problem so like Then that progressed to, you know, social media and, you know, games on your smartphone and just texting. I mean, probably, I mean, you could take that all the way back to I am, you know, to aim, you know, so which was obviously a thing back then. But yeah, for me, that that's what that would spell out as far as social media and smartphones. What what do you what about you? Do you have any uh, any Uh, thoughts on that? (laughs) I think you're right. Like we see those scenes of him playing Tetris on his computer and uh, he's talking to the Bobs about how he probably does about 15 minutes of work a day. I think all that time he would spend on Twitter or like watching YouTube videos on his computer or his phone, definitely. One thing that I, th- I think you might be, you might find this surprising or interesting is I think Milton would actually have a very active Twitter account and online presence because oh. he's such a like quiet, shy I guess introverted maybe, but he doesn't yeah. express himself very well. I think people like that are probably like prone to finding themselves online and becoming, you know, more outspoken in like message boards and like social media with maybe an, an anonymous, you know, avatar, sure. like a, an, an anime avatar or something on Twitter. <laughs> I could see I think that. that he, I think he would be one of those people where like he builds it all up and then he just rails on people on social media and like... <laughs> You know, he's tweeting about how much he hates his boss. And if they make me move my desk again, I'm going to burn that place to the ground. Like, 
you know, that'll get a few likes. <laughs> I could so totally see that. Yeah, he finds himself through his online persona instead mm. of real life persona. Or maybe his yeah. real life persona is his online persona, but it's he could still be <laughs> introverted, but just, yeah, it's so funny. That's a great point. Yeah. And then there's the relationship with the neighbor. I feel like, you know, yelling through the walls, one thing, but I don't know if like phone would that change if with phones like i feel like we're less like in touch with our neighbors because we've always got people to talk to wherever we go on our phones i just thought that might be something different too yeah you definitely wouldn't be yelling out that there's boobs on channel nine or whatever when there's so much more access to that kind of thing (laughs) great point that's a great point plus if they could if it lawrence is the type of character too is that his name lawrence he he's the type of character too that would be texting from the construction site all day and just bothering the hell out of Peter. So like whatever he had to say would have been said way before Peter got home because whatever thoughts he had about whatever would already be texted or emailed or he would try to call a million times, you know. He once he had the ability to do that, he could stop yelling through the wall. You're absolutely right. Yeah. He probably would be sending photos of boobs to him on his phone instead of the TV. That's exactly right. Okay. You, you mentioned it just then, but do you think we could make this film in 2019? And what would that version look like? Yeah, I think I think you could definitely make it in 2019. I just think you would have to add... Colin talks about this. He, he said a lot of funny things about this with Seinfeld. Like He would like to mm. see Seinfeld brought back with all the modern contrivances. You know, like, let's see a, a Seinfeld that deals with texting. Let's see, let's see a Seinfeld mm-hmm. that deal, has to deal with smartphones now you know, whatever it is, electric cars or Uber or whatever. And I think this is exactly the same thing. Like you would have to inject all those modern 2020 elements into it. You know, a shorter work week, a longer work day, working remotely, at least part of the time, how the workers deal with that and how the supervisors deal with that. You know, distractions at home, maternity leave, you know, paternity leave, you know, all that kind of stuff. So you know, I think just just all those modern things about how it's evolved now from 1999 to 2020. Now, what do you what about you? What do you think about that? Yeah, I think it, you've nailed it there. Like, it could absolutely still be relevant, and it would be different. Obviously, like Silicon Valley is a TV show that deals with like startups and and working in those environments, and then even the themes of this film. Like, if you think about Horrible Bosses, I don't know if you've seen that in Horrible Bosses too. I quite like it. I saw the first movies. one. I know that. Okay. Yeah, I don't. I know they're not like hugely successful, but it's essentially like the second half of this movie of Office Space where they've got this plot against their workplace. In Horrible Bosses, they're trying to have a hitman kill their bosses. And it's it's a similar kind of thing where it's, you know, they're all just fed up with the minutiae and the, the having a terrible boss and... They decide to take action into their own hands. And I think that, you know, that's a, a, a similar kind of thing in that aspect. And there's plenty of room for a movie like this. So, yeah, I definitely think you could make it. And I'd love to see Gary Cole come back as Lumberg. Imagine where oh, Lumberg would be so working fun. in 2019. Like, it's been 20 years since then. I'd just yeah, love I to see him still exactly the same. <laughs> how old? How old do you think Lumberg is in this movie? I often wonder that. I think he's playing older than the actor. It feels like I reckon it he is at the time. Only been like yeah, I feel like he would have been like maybe thirty-five, late thirties. Sure, but, sure. Yeah. yeah, I could see that. It's hard to think yeah. of, right? I don't even know exactly how old our main trio is. 
you know, you figure from what they're going through and where they're at that they're probably late twenties. Yeah, yeah, something like that. You know, so yeah, you think Lumberg being a full, you know, maybe not quite that old, but at least fifteen years their senior, you would assume. But it's an interesting mm-hmm. thought. It's inter- it kind of leaves things open to your imagination, which is kind of nice. Actually, because you could think that through a little bit. You don't really know how old anybody is in the film. Yeah, and that makes it a bit more relatable too. Yeah, 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 definitely. So just some quick useless trivia here, Dagan. I think I mentioned Ben Affleck before. He apparently wanted $2 million to do the film. And, you know, with a budget of $10 it's like, yeah, that's not going to (laughs) work. Wow. What? And then to take that even further, you mentioned Owen Wilson and Vince Vaughn being up for a couple roles. Billy Bob Thornton was also considered. He wanted five million, so that definitely wasn't going to happen. <laughs> Holy cow! What was was he coming off of? What was he coming off of at that time to be asking for that much? Sheesh! Uh, I know he was in Armageddon as like a, a NASA guy, so that oh, wasn't a right. huge role though. That's I think right. he was more of a character actor still. He was yet to have like a huge, massive like breakout thing. But yeah, he wasn't a movie yeah, star know. yet. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not like he is now. No. Maybe he just didn't want to do the movie, so he just asked for a lot of money. <laughs> I've, I've read that Michael Bolton, like the real Michael Bolton, he actually signs DVDs that people bring to him of this movie, and he writes the real Michael Bolton on them. Have you seen repri- him reprise the role in the, like, wh- who did it? Funny, <laughs> yeah. or Di- Funny or Die or something, right? Yeah, something like that. And he, like, changes the, the line about, like, how he's a talentless hack or something into, like, <laughs> extremely talented... <laughs> Oh, he changes the yeah. ass clown line. The ass clown thing is like the fit my favorite quote in the whole movie. Yeah, he, no, he changes it. <laughs> I think he like has a little wink at the camera. And it's funny you, you mentioned that because apparently, like as of October last year, the term ass clown was officially entered into the Webster's Dictionary, crediting no. Mike Judge for first using it in Office Space. No way, dude! That is amazing. I think it's actually an improvised line by David Herman, so he's really the one that should be getting credit for it. Yeah, I think David Herman said his ex-wife said it, and that's where he got mm. it from. So yeah, that's there you funny. Go. Oh man, that's that's great. <laughs> that's too great. Yeah. And the last little bit of trivia I wanted to throw out there is about the red stapler, and I mentioned this before. Mm. So it's a, a swing line stapler, and for whatever reason, Mike Judge wanted a red stapler. They didn't make red staplers, so they got one and spray painted it. And then it was such a popular request that they decided to start manufacturing red swing line staplers and it's been their (laughs) most popular product for years (laughs) that's amazing stapler stapler the swing line stapler (laughs) i just love when like when the when real life has to like respond to film like that like i think in home alone there's like a home alone 2 he has this voice recorder dictaphone type toy that was not an actual product and they had to go out and make a kid's version because it was so popular in the movie. <laughs> I love that. That's so cool. I love when people just, there's a demand for something through its popularity that is, is unexpected. And you know what? I'll, I'll proffer to say that people probably say stapler more than they say stapler. <laughs> you know, that's how big, that's <laughs> like, they probably say stapler more than they say the actual word stapler. That's how big this whole thing has become with the stapler. It's so funny. I know my wife said talks like that. So it's like this. It's just ingrained. It's just ingrained in people's skull. It's amazing. Mm. Something that doesn't have much use, as you mentioned before, with paper dying out. But you got to have yeah. one around just in case. You got to have one. 
Got to have one. You could shoot them at people. The jackass guys <laughs> have found another. They've found a whole other yeah. use for them. <laughs> That's it. Dagan, it's time for the Steve Buscemi Spark Plug Award. Steve oh. Buscemi. A real spark plug. And uh, we've got a few nominees here. Okay. Greg Pitts for the O-Face guy. His, <laughs> his name is uh, Drew in the film. Yes. He's not on screen for long, but it's always memorable when he's there. Uh, so good. With John C. McGinley as one of the bobs. He might be too much. He might be in the movie too much to, to qualify for this, but I thought that I needed to mention him. And then, of course, Diedrich Bader as uh, the neighbor. Lawrence, every time he's on screen, you know, it's brief, but it's always always good quality. Absolutely. Have I missed anyone as, as far as, you know, there's a lot of characters in this film. You know, there's a lot of people with small pot roles that are memorable. But is there anyone, do you think, that deserves to be up for consideration for this award? You know who's really funny in the movie and one of my favorites in the film, although he doesn't have much screen time, is Mike Judge himself playing the Stan character, who is the Tchotchke's restaurant manager. The boss? Yeah, okay. Oh, dude, he is, for me, one of the... Oh, he is so believable to me. And and Mike Judge talks about him basing that character. He went into like a Kinko's or something late one night, and there was a Kinko's manager like harassing one of the employees, like just really being condescending. And he based that whole, he remembered it and based the whole character on it. And I think it's such a realistic character. Like, I feel like I know that character. He's kind of, he's like creepy and he likes his job a little too much. And kind of like Lumberg, like he, yeah, he takes it too seriously. He sacrifices his humanity in order to like, (laughs) you know, like it's really dude. Like it's not, it's nice that you're gung ho about your job, but, it's a little <laughs> crazy. So I love that character. And I would also give a shout out to Nina, who's the just a moment. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. There's a great deleted scene of, of um, Peter going up to her and just telling her, can you just mix it up a little bit? Like, oh, I watched the tone that. of your voice. I, I liked so that. Funny. I liked that scene. I thought they should have kept that in. I thought that yeah. was actually kind of funny because he's so right. I just shout out the actor's name. It's Kinner McKinroy. So oh, I see that. That's, yeah, a, that's yeah, a good yeah. one. Yeah, but uh, yeah. So for me, I'm just gonna have to go ahead and give it to Drew, <laughs> uh, Greg, <laughs> Greg Pitts for the O face. He's so. Uh, good. It's just he's just so funny. Like, and he is like in the movie. He's a spark plug. He's in there like two scenes, I think, and every time he's he's just hilarious. So yeah, yeah, and you know that dude. I know I know that dude like twenty times over. Oh, you know, yeah, from everybody different, does. You know, it's like, just like, dude, <laughs> be quiet. Like, wildly inappropriate. Shut up, yeah. <laughs> like, he's yeah, still yeah, he's yeah. still in the frat house. You know what I mean? He's still in the frat Absolutely. house. He hasn't come out of the frat house. He's always going to be in the frat house. I like it. I, I think I might give it to him, too. Congratulations. You, to. you are the Steve Buscemi Spark Plug Award winner. <laughs> and I'm sure Greg Pitts can put that up on the shelf as one of his proudest uh, awards of his career. So... <laughs> Dagan, last question before yeah. we wrap up. Is Office Space still a good movie? You know what, Jono? It is. I think there's so much of this movie that just retains a timeless quality. It's still a great film because it has great mm-hmm. acting, great acting, great timing, and it's just great social satire. And I think those things carry it. You know, those things mm-hmm. never get stale. I think all the la- almost all the lampooning in the movie still works great. 
And the film just has a familiarity and a reliability, and a, sort of a relatability that just sort of carries it through time. You know, these things, again, these things never get old. We all work. Well, if, if you're lucky, you don't work, but most of us work. And <laughs> we could all relate to these things. You know, work is such a big part of our lives the, and the workplace and our colleagues and the people that we work with such a big part of our lives. And I think that those things really speak to its timelessness. Now, what about for you? Do you still hold it up as a good? Did, yeah. did, did you do you like the movie? I do. I haven't. I guess I haven't said that yet. I love this no. movie. <laughs> it's not <laughs> obvious by this point. Um, I think that it holds up perfectly fine. Like, I think it's, yeah, like there's nothing about the pacing that's aged. There's nothing about really any of it. I mean, apart from the fact that it takes an hour to get to, I guess, the the heist kind of planning and that kind of thing we talked about. But apart from that, like, I think that it could release now and do a lot better than it did back then with some good marketing. I think that the jokes, like they're, they're not dated references really. Michael Bolton is still <laughs> somewhat of a figure. That's a good uh, he's, he does like ads for Audible or not Audible, but something like Audible, like one of those okay. companies that does uh, audio books. That's where I've seen him recently anyway. That's and, funny. I haven't seen that. Yeah, I just, maybe it's only in Australia, but I, I feel like it's, just generally not something that has dated i think it all holds up quite good the the jokes are still relevant working in office is always going to be like this i suppose and it just captures office dynamics more than anything i can think of apart from maybe the british version of the office they both do that so well the american office i'm a big fan of and it's so different. It's a bit more zany and a bit more over the top and it doesn't really yeah. lean into those nuances and the monotonous drudgery of, of turning up to a job that you don't like. And I think that is what this movie is really leaning into and, and doing so well because Mike Judge has obviously picked up all these experiences along the way, whether it's Milton, whether it's Lumberg, whether it's um the, you know, the character that he's playing in the movie himself at the tchotchkes but you can just feel the realness of all these people and even the receptionist that keeps saying the same thing over and over <laughs> like you like almost everything in this movie you know that it's just come from someone observing it and putting it onto paper and i think that's what makes it work so well you're right it does feel like that it's very much very much in line with like a curb your enthusiasm like a larry has a very yep. larry david thing to it you know where it's not centered around one personality and his experiences, but yeah, you're absolutely right. For I mean, for sure. You know what's really cool about it is you you take two different filmmakers with rich cartoon animation heritages in Tim Burton and um, Mike Judge. And what's interesting mm -hmm. about you know that rich aesthetic brand that you're getting with Tim Burton. And not only the aesthetic brand, but the gothic nature of his stories and all that kind of stuff. I would say, I would argue that Mike Judge's voice and his brand and what he brings to the table is just as strong, just in a more restrained way visually. But I like that, you know, Mike Judge is almost like Tim Burton in that you're getting a very specific thing. And you could tell what he brings to the table is also what he's you know, the stories he's telling us are very important to him. Hmm. It, it's very, it's all very sincere and it's all very consistent. Yeah. And you can always tell it's Mike judge through the Beavis and Buttheads and the King of the Hills and the, all the various 
live action projects he's involved in. I, I kind of love that. You know, I, I love that the animation guys sort of have that, you know, nuance to their work where it's, it's very much of what they do. And you could always yeah. tell that you could always doesn't make it boring. It doesn't make it monotonous. It's just that they have a very specific vision and they always put that on screen. And I love that. I love that about Mike judge. I'm, I'm such a, I'm such a huge fan of his, I would like to see catch up with what he's doing now. Like we talked about earlier in the show, I want to really get caught up with all the stuff that he's had a hand in creating. Cause I've been, I've been totally out of the loop. <laughs> I really, yeah. Have. I mean, honestly, since idiocracy, which I, I love as well. And it's another film that speaks to reality in ways that are quite different from this one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> I haven't really followed what he's done since then. So yeah, I guess, uh, We've both got some stuff to catch up on, but yeah, it would be fun. Dagan, that's been a really enjoyable and fun conversation about a fantastic movie. We are closing up the show now, but you've just been involved with a book that released with Pat Contry, right? The NES Punk, and I thought it'd be oh, yeah. good to give you a chance to plug that. What's been your involvement and tell us a bit about that project? Oh, thank you, dude. I really appreciate that. So Pat Contry, a lot of you guys may know him. He's a, you know, a famous YouTube celebrity. He's sort of he might he might shy away from that description he's a famous he, you know he's a, <laughs> a well-known youtuber retro gamer re- yep. very big nintendo collector and um he came out with an ultimate nintendo guidebook which is a little basically a little brief description and review of every nintendo nes game from the 80s and, and 90s and then recently he released his super nintendo book in the same tradition. So this is the ultimate guide to the SNES or the ultimate SNES guidebook. It is by Pat Contry. And I contributed a bunch of reviews and reflections of various games. I think I reviewed about 35 games for the book. And I don't know if I told you this, Jono. I also did a bunch of rewrites, <clears throat> excuse me, for the NES cool. guidebook for the third edition. So I wrote about, cool. yeah, I wrote about 20 or 30. I rewrote, about 20 or 30 reviews for the NES guidebook. So if you get the third edition of the NES guidebook, I have a bunch of work in there as well. And yeah, the book is really beautiful. It's a beautiful, heavy, robust coffee table book. It's beautifully put together, beautifully illustrated. I think it's a really good bargain for the price. And yeah, thanks for giving me a chance to plug that. Pat's turned into a good friend and um, it's been a pleasure to work with him on, on the projects. And hopefully there'll be another project that he'll be announcing when he gets some rest after he gets some rest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It is hard work. I've just released my second book as well, The Maven Effect. Dude, congratulations on that. Con- uh, yeah. That's huge. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool to have it out there. So if, if people want to pick that one up, it's got a foreword in it by Colin Moriarty as well. So yeah. that's a good opportunity to... I know Colin doesn't write much anymore, but hey, if you hungry for some Colin writing there's a yeah. good few hundred words in there about nice um, about the the two books in the series so yeah that's the maven effect it's uh on gumroad.com slash johnny himself if you want to check out both of those books but uh for now we will say thank you for listening and if you want to help out the show itunes reviews obviously go a long way to getting us across the line as far as moving up those charts and we want to thank our Patreon producers as well because without them over at 8-Bit, we wouldn't have 
a show like this. So that's patreon.com slash we are 8-bit, A-T-E-B-I-T. If you want to kick in a few bucks a month and help us out, of course, you can catch Dagan over on Knockback and an upcoming future podcast. I guess it's probably too yeah. early to, to pimp that one, but keep an eye on, uh, on Dagan on social media. <laughs> for that one do you want to tell people where they can catch you for all those updates Dagan absolutely Jono thank you so at Instagram I'm trying to post I've been a little I've been slacking off on Instagram but I'm trying to post more I'm at Dagan likes to draw my first name is Mm -hmm. D-A-G-A-N really easy to spell just five letters Dagan likes to draw and on Twitter I am at Dagan 1973 I like to uh, post on Twitter every day try to do a little something on Twitter every day just a little just try to make people laugh. Nothing, nothing ever heavy on on Twitter for me. I use it, I use it purely to uh, interact with people and have fun. So yeah, definitely shout at me. And my DMs are open. Slide, slide into my DMs as I say, as I say, I knock back all the time. Yeah, and Jono, thank you so much for having me. It was a, it was absolute pleasure. I love uh, talking with you. It was the second time I had the opportunity to do a podcast with you and i hope we could do another one in the future it was a it was a really good time and i appreciate you uh having me aboard for this no problem at all thanks for coming on and i guess i should say if you want to learn more about dagan's work leading up to knockback but mostly focus on animation my interview with you was putting in work uh, episode whatever it was about a year ago yeah about <laughs> so, a year ago. so look that look that one up and and get some more dagan and jono in your ear holes but for now dear listeners Thank you for joining us on Comedy Rewind. Be kind.